Good morning. Good morning. So today we commemorated Yon Maureen Stewart Roshi's death day. She actually passed away on the 26th, which was Thursday, but we had Doksan that evening, and I thought better to uh, commemorate her anniversary of her passing on Sunday morning when we would have some Sangha members who actually practiced with her. How many? So two of you. May get soon? Uh-huh. You? Ensu was also here at the time and uh, actually he took Jukai with her and received uh, the Dharma name Bugyo which was later changed since there was already a Bugyo at Daibasatsu Zendo, Edo Roshi gave him the name Ensu. Happens quite often. <coughs> so I was thinking a lot about how this. 14 years since her passing has gone by so fast. I was working on this book. It was published in 96, which seems like a couple of days ago. And um, next year, it will be the 15th year So I was thinking maybe we can invite some of her old students here and do a one-day commemoration sitting. The way she began as a teacher in Hoenji's Lineage, even though she is not formally in the lineage of our um, school, was very much involved with Soen Roshi. We had um, been doing weekend session This was in my attic of my home, and I had arranged with Ada Roshi to come and do this session with us in 1984, spring. And uh, just before he was scheduled to come, 
I got a phone call from him, very great consternation in his voice, and he said, So and Roshi just passed away. I have to go to Japan. So this was March 11th. Nineteen eighty-four, and on his last visit to the United States, Soen Roshi had met with Maureen in a private encounter and had told her, "Tell your students to call you Roshi." So I immediately called Maureen. And I said, "Have you heard?" She said, "No. No one had called her." So I told her. And over the course of the next few days, and talking further with her, I said, "Would you come? And let's have a." Commemorative spring session in Soen Roshi's honor, and so she did. And this was the first time she came as a teacher to Hoenji. Before that, although we had invited her to give a talk, and she had visited, it was as my friend. And so, from that time on, in 1984. We became very much involved with Maureen as a teacher, and quite a few Sangha members from here went to Cambridge Buddhist Association, Massachusetts, where she was teaching, and she came twice a year. I still have a copy of the booklet that we put together after her first session with us in '84. With sangha members, poems, and thank you little notes, and um,、uh, a drawing by my son, who at the time was three. She and he became extremely close, and I have many pictures of her holding Jesse. She was. A great favorite of his, and in fact, the first time I left him to go to session, which was the following year, or maybe the end of '84, it was to go to Cambridge Buddhist Association, and after I returned, Andy told me. Um, that he had Jesse had asked him.、Um, what should we do if mommy doesn't come home? Should we get a new mommy? <laughs> and and he said, "Well, what do you think? What what should we do? What mommy should we get if that happens?" 
And Jesse said, Maureen. (laughs) She had that kind of effect on everyone. She was just so warm and thoroughly, unconditionally accepting. She really was so amazingly accepting, which didn't mean that she didn't have that stern Rinzai Zen master spirit. But it was a great, great experience for me to practice with her those years. And for those of you who had that opportunity, however short. At uh, New York Sendo, we would have weekend session, and everyone would be um, staying over very much the way we do here, with sleeping bags. And there was less space there, and we only had one area where people could sleep. It was the uh, second floor, kind of equivalent to our Dharma Hall in the Foreman House. There it was the library. And there were two changing rooms, one for men, one for women, no bigger than the ones we have here. And... um, those who were uh, living close by came and went, but most of us stayed over. So it was really just one room of um, shoulder-to-shoulder sleeping bags, men and women, just kind of, if you rolled over without awareness, you would be in someone's arms or whatever. It was really tight fit. And in the morning, I remember, I think I might have written about this in the introduction to this, my first encounter with Maureen, who had been sitting at New York Zendo since 1965. So my first weekend session, at the time I had kind of frail health, and so getting up early and not having breakfast until 7.30, I was thinking, well, I better... I'd better get something. I brought little dried fruit. So I was sitting in the dressing room, crouching underneath all the robes and all the um, coats and in between sleeping bags, and people were coming in and throwing their bags in, and everybody was waiting to use the one bathroom. And I was kind of nibbling furtively from this plastic bag of dried fruits. And... Maureen came in, and she was kind of this amazing presence. I was like, oh my God, I've been caught. And so my first impulse was to reach into my little bag and hand her an apricot. And she took it with a smile, walked out. It was just a wonderful Zen moment. Everything changed may be hard for you to understand, but... Anyway, uh, yeah, she had really beautiful red hair. 
at that time. Now you see in this picture, she let it go white, but it's very imposing. And um, later that year, she moved to Boston. Her husband, Ozzy Friedgood, um, from whom she was later divorced, designed and manufactured toys. And so they and their three children moved up to the Boston area, and she became uh, very much involved with Cambridge Buddhist Association, which had been founded by Elsie Mitchell. But I thought it might be interesting for you to hear a little bit about her first uh, part of her Zen practice life when she was in New York City still and had just been walking her children to school and returning home. And she took a different route and she saw this brownstone on the corner of West 81st and West End Avenue. This is where we first started doing Zazen before New York Zendo Shoboji was uh, established. And she saw a sign, Zen Studies Society. And she rang the bell. And the person we now know as Ada Roshi, then Taisan, a young monk, came to the door. And she asked if she could come in and learn something about Zen. And he went out into the hallway and came back and handed her a piece of paper with the times of sittings and closed the door. Very different from the way we are now <laughs> in Zen centers around the world. Oh, please come in. Would you like to sign the guest book? Here's all of our literature. Please let us know if there's anything we can help you with. Would you like a cushion or do you think you need a bench? Would you like a chair? Let us give you some introduction. We have all these classes. No, just... So then she went back, and um, another day was walking by uh, Riverside Park and saw this little guy in black monk's robes wearing sneakers and with these huge translucent ears. She found out later that that was Haku and Yasutani Roshi. He was um, visiting Zen Study Society frequently back in the late 60s. So she went back to the Zendo, and she found that there was a sign-up sheet for a week-long session with Yasutani Roshi to be held at Pumpkin Hollow in Clarenville, New York. Immediately she signed up. Then she got a phone call from one of the senior students Sylvan Bush. He called up and he said, Do you know what a session is? Can you get up really early in the morning? Can you sit still? She answered, Yes. I can get up early in the morning. I do it all the time. She was a concert pianist and raising three children. And 
She had already started sitting on her own, so of course, no problem. Can you sit still? No problem. Okay, he said. I guess you can go. So she got on the train with a couple of other Zen students, and they were off to Clarenville. Somebody on the train asked them, Where are you going? We're going to a place in the mountains. Oh, will there be entertainment, a floor show? Maureen found herself saying, oh yes, the floor show goes on all day. (laughs) So they got there, and they had to take all the furniture out of the big room there, which sounds familiar to those of you who have done Alverna Heights sessions here. And then they had to cover the windows with white sheets, and then... Newcomers were asked to meet with Yasutani Roshi in a special ceremony. And they began. And she said, the flies were terrible, just constant. No one told me anything about the many rituals, the bowing. There was no orientation back in those days. At the end of the day, I decided it was just impossible to go on. I had made a mistake. I had had it with this Zen stuff. Now, back in those days, session with Yasutani Roshi, okay, what this Zen stuff was, I'll read from my introduction. Barked commands, an atmosphere of general hysteria. Students were urged toward Kensho through shouting, exhorting, and the liberal use of the Keisaku. In addition to all this, an old skiing accident um, injury was making Maureen's sitting absolutely unbearable. No one had ever told her about any variation from sitting cross-legged. So she called Ozzy, and she said, I'm ready to come home. Come pick me up! He said, you know what you've done to try to get this time? You made all these things happen, taking care of the children, making sure everything would be all right. You really wanted to go, remember? Now you're there. Don't you think you should stay? So, she said, I stuck it out through nights of hideous laughter on the part of one of the students and through days of terrible pain. And things did get better. One day, she was in Doksan and somehow she was able to speak about the difficulty she was having physically to Yasutani Roshi through Taisan. Edo Roshi was then Yasutani Roshi's attendant, and all Doksan had to be translated. So he was there and helping. And eventually they worked out a posture that she could take, straddling two cushions like Shigetsu. By the fifth day, that was that, she recalled. I was hooked. I knew I would go to every single session from then on. So she did and began uh, teaching with Elsie Mitchell's um, request 
at Cambridge Buddhist Association and was ordained by Ada Roshi later on. And we established this wonderful Dharma connection here and at Cambridge Buddhist Association until her last year. The last Rohatsu that she sat through, 1989, I wrote in my journal after being there with her, Maureen's talks seem to be preparing us for her death. During Doksan last night, she told me, I have chosen a place under the birch trees in the backyard where I want my ashes spread. This morning, she talked of Son Roshi's pure, illuminating, radiant, childlike nature and how it had evolved through great struggle and said something I never knew before, that he had once contemplated suicide. She talked of his way of speaking of no death, and that we take this form for a brief period, but that our energy continues as it had before our birth. She taught us that health is not the opposite of sickness, and that although our habitual way of thinking is dualistic, in reality we are all living with good cells and bad cells simultaneously in a condition of utter impermanence. And she spoke of the Zen master Takuan, who, asked by his disciples for a last word, said, I have no last word. And then at his final moment, Takuan took up his brush wrote the Chinese character for dream, put down the brush, and died. This one character, dream, Maureen said, symbolized for Takuan the reality of the Dharma. It went beyond talking or not talking, is it or isn't it, just a dream. When we realize that we and the universe are just a dream, When alive, we are alive through and through, and everything around us is alive. Life is a dream, death is a dream, heaven and earth and all things under the sun are just a dream. So that wonderful teaching of Maureen's is repeated again at the end of the book that I put together of her edited Taisho. And I want to read a little bit from this last chapter called Last Word. Each of the activities we are engaged in, 
when given our full attention, without any feeling of resentment or comparison, is an opportunity to experience something, to open our eyes more clearly. Now, this sentence is really simple and so profound. Each of the activities we are engaged in, how many times do we prioritize our activities and consider them in a kind of hierarchical way as the activities that are more important and less important and have more consequence and are just kind of a frittering away of our time? There's no such thing as frittering away. If we really understand this, each of the activities we are engaged in, when given our full attention, this is Zen practice in a nutshell. How many times over the past 24 hours have you given anything your full attention? Can you think of something that you did with full attention during the past 24 hours? What is this full attention? Without any feeling of resentment or comparison. Full attention. No resentment at having to do something, right? No comparison. Is this more important? Is this going to have some kind of uh, outcome compared to that? Nothing whatsoever about it. This is what we mean by full attention. No thoughts about it, right? Imagine sitting in Zazen with full attention. Wow, what a concept, right? Immediately we have a concept about it. What would that be like? So when you do it, of course there's no concept. Just full attention. When we let go of our egocentric hold on things, we find that something wonderful is there. Something that has always been there. We have never been without it. Another incredible sentence, so simple. When we let go of our egocentric hold on things, she says, When do we let go of our egocentric hold on things? Very rarely. It takes a long time, many, many, many years of Zazen before even in Zazen we can let go of our egocentric hold on things. Always there's some little voice, is this good for me? Is this working? Shouldn't I be doing it differently? Isn't somebody else's better? Always some kind of comparison going on. With many years of sitting, of course, we, what? We notice, right? We notice more. We can see it more clearly. But doesn't mean that it just goes away once and for all. Just throw everything away, she continues, including anything I may say including any good condition that may arise, just go on. 
this really was Maureen's teaching more than anything else I can remember. She always stressed this, just go on. Another time she put it, move on, move on. This is very difficult for us, isn't it? We know intellectually things are moving on, but they're moving on without us. Because <laughs> we're still where we think we need to be, or we're projected into where we think things should be moving on to, right? It's very difficult for us to just go on to just throw everything away. Throwing everything away is very, very difficult. Especially, especially we're all well-trained to, uh, after many years of schooling, to sort through the knowledge received and memorize and acquire and hold on for further use to many different things. And especially what we consider to be uh, wise advice. So to hear a teacher say, Just throw everything away, including anything I may say. We may say to ourselves, well, okay, I'll throw away everything except that. (laughs) I'll always remember that she said, throw everything away, including what I may say. (laughs) This is kind of the way our minds go. Just go on. What keeps us from really trusting this just go on? We want a result. Because there's something about why we want that result. Why we can't say, okay, I'll just go on. It's out of your control then. It's definitely out of your control. You want a result, it's out of your control. Isn't it? Can't trust. Can't trust. Can't trust. What can't you trust? Hmm? Okay. It's okay? It's okay? Because you want to control, you can't believe that it's okay without your control. Right? How could the universe possibly go on without my controlling it? <laughs> pretty interesting when you start looking at why you can't just throw everything away and just go on. Immediately questions arise. Just go on where? Just go on how? You know? As I often say, we feel terrified at the thought of not having a script for our lives. How are we going to go on? What do you mean just go on? How can we go on without having some kind of guidelines? All right, guidelines. But the guideline is just throw it away. (laughs) Oh, no. 
So this is the wonderful situation that we find ourselves in as practitioners of the Dharma. Always this is arising, the need to hold on, and always we are being reminded, it's moving on. It's already gone. Let it go. Don't hold on to anything. No condition is permanent, she says. Become the smoke from the incense. Drop off the habit of interfering with what happens and you will sense your mind becoming healthier, stronger. Accepting your discomforts or frustrations rather than repressing or avoiding them, allowing changes in yourself, you will experience your true self. So this is great encouragement, right? to feel the more we sit, the more we come and do this practice, even when we feel it's really beyond us. We can't get it. We don't know why we're having so much trouble. Nevertheless, we keep doing it. And it's true. There is some feeling that our mind is healthier. Stronger. And then she says, chanting the three refuges as we do each day, Tisarana, we feel something just from the beautiful sounds themselves. So many people uh, come to the Zen Center here in many, many places, and they say, why are you chanting in that weird language? And what is that language anyway? And then we have to say, well, we start with Pali and then we go, we do some of our morning service in English, you may have noticed, and we also do a lot of our morning service in Kombon, um, Sino-Japanese. We feel something just from the beautiful sounds themselves, but our makeup is we want to grab, we want to acquire the meaning. Okay, so for most of us, the meaning has to do with where the truth is, not the being in it and letting it go, but rather an acquired concept. It's so reassuring. Okay, so then we want to know, well, what does... Budam saranam gachami. What does it mean? It's not enough. Okay? Budam saranam gachami. Well, it may sound beautiful, but it's not enough for me, right? Okay, what's it mean? And then we come up with this real difficult thing called translation. And so somebody said to me, Well, I really I cannot recite. Budam saranam gachami, because in the translation, I don't know if it's in this sutra book or not, it says, I give my life to the Buddha. This is, by the way, of course, not the actual translation. The actual translation is from the Pali, Budam, to the Buddha, saranam, take refuge, gachami. I go. 
What's it in there? Hmm? Give my life? So that's Itaroshi's um, retranslation that we chant. So this person was very concerned. So this is what happens. We look at an English translation and we think, oh, now I understand what it means. And now we're in trouble. Because not only don't we understand what it is to give our lives to the Buddha, we don't understand what it is, using the old translation, to take refuge in Buddha. We don't understand anything. So here we have meaning, and we've lost understanding. So we have Buddham, Saranam, Gachami, these beautiful sounds which have been chanted since when? How far back? Hmm? Since almost 2,500 years. At least 2,500 years ago. Now it's the year. Years. Now it's the year 2004, right? right. A long time. Buddham, Saranam, Gachami has been chanted in every culture, speaking every possible language. This Pali, Buddham, Saranam, Gachami has been used. And people have said, oh, what's that mean? And learning what the meaning is, they've said, well, I can't chant that. So this is what happens. Accepting your discomforts or frustrations rather than repressing or avoiding them. So our frustration, well, I don't know what's being said. Or our frustration, well, how can I go forward and just go on and drop everything off? This is very important to our practice, to really say okay to our frustrations, our discomforts. Again, this is the kernel of our practice. Everybody here has an idea of how things should be. They may not all match. <laughs> it would be really interesting to go around and, you know, we have maybe... Let's be democratic about how we conduct morning service. Let's be democratic about how we do Zen training. So to accept our discomforts and frustrations, knowing full well that if it were up to each one of us, things would be much better. And at the same time, just saying, okay, I guess we're chanting in Pali now. And then something happens. Year after year, Buddham, Saranam, Gachami, something happens. Suddenly those sounds are the true sounds of our lives. And meaning, apart from words, is realized.
So then she goes on and tells a story about a Zen master named Seppo, who many of you are familiar with. And she tells the story of two monks who came to see him. And he came to see them at the gate, and he pushed open the gate and saw these two young monks and thought, Aha! Now we'll have some fun. Here are some visitors. Let's see what happens. He opened the gate, and he said, What is this? Wonderful greeting. Imagine somebody rings your door. You come to the door, fling it open. There's the meter reader. (laughs) You say, what is this? What did the young monks do? They came back with the same words. What is this? He turned away and walked back to his cottage. Dokusan's over. So Maureen says, At first, these two monks may have thought they had defeated Seppo by quickly responding with his own phrase. But later, they thought about it and they wondered. They decided to go see Ganto, who is a friend of Seppo and might be able to explain it to them. Hearing their story, Ganto said, If Seppo had been given the last word, then you would never have been able to feel that you had defeated him. The monks spent the summer with Ganto and continued to ponder their encounter with Seppo. At the end of the summer, they met with Ganto again, who told them, Seppo and I had our eyes opened in the same way. He was saying, we both are enlightened people. And then he told them, but we are dying in different ways. This dying didn't mean dying as an ending life, but dying as in giving it all away, giving everything away, teaching. What is this was Seppo's way of teaching. Ganto's way was the last word. Rinzai's way was quats. Gute's way was one finger. These are all different ways of giving it away. What is this last word? Gondo said, If you want to know the last word, I'll tell you. This. And Maureen continues, There is no last word. There is no end to it. Somebody told me, I have finished my Zen training. I have answered all 1,700 koans. I replied, well, you've just begun. Nobody finishes this training. There is no last word. This is a present tensed word going on forever. What is your own experience of this.